I did not believe in a visible church, but I was frustrated that a visible church didn't exist in my ecclesiology. And it's because I saw all the things that the Mm -hmm. church is supposed to be up to in scripture, that the church is up to in the book of Acts. And I looked around and I thought, how can my little congregation ever have a diversity enough of people to handle all these needs that are happening around us? Um, Yeah. Because ultimately all the places I went were somewhat homogenous because it they all consisted of people who were sort of in the same headspace. And yet I look around, uh, you know, at the Catholic Church, and I'm like, we got hospitals and pregnancy centers and soup kitchens and, you know, overseas missionaries yeah. and like, and all of that. And that's only possible because of this other kind of concept of what it means to be a body than what I yeah. had uh, in my previous understanding. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Practically Perfect in Every Way episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach here at the Coming Home Network. Ken Hensley directs pastoral care. Kenny Burchard directs up the development department. Really, it's just him in that department. But we are all here because we came from different faith backgrounds. Uh, Ken and Kenny were Protestant pastors, uh, and now we're all Catholic. So this whole series of stuff that we do on on the journey is an attempt to kind of explain some of that and our thinking on these questions, hopefully as a help to those of you who are also on the journey. Uh, check us out at chnetwork.org for lots of great resources. We also have an online community you can visit if you want to interact with people directly. Uh, that's community.chnetwork.org. All this made possible uh, because of the generous support of people who talk to Kenny. Uh, and you can do that at chnetwork.org slash compass. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm doing great. Good. I feel I so. A, I feel so a, luminous. Look at look how bright yeah. Ken is today. Well, is, you know uh, what? I, I've been told that there's not enough light, so I just threw open a bit of the window over here, and I'm I'm hoping that that is, makes it a little bit better. It's great. Okay? Yeah. He threw open the window, Matt, and Matt, I, I was sure you sash. were going to say. I was sure you were going to say today. Well, hello, and welcome to another dubious episode. Dubious on episode. The journey with no. Matt and Ken. Okay. okay but oh, anyway. Practically perfect in every way because you just remind me so much of Mary Poppins. So uh, that was I it. do. You do. I do. So let's have okay. a little spoonful of sugar and help the uh, catechetical medicine go down, as it were, and catch us up to where we are. Well, where we are is, is simply that we're going through the catechism section on the church, and we're going through it paragraph by paragraph. And so uh, this week's section... Um, we're going to be looking at the church as the body and bride of Christ. Now, these are images we've mentioned in the past already. They've come up, but we're going to do more of a deep dive, okay? The church as the body and the bride of Christ. And I'm launching out by talking about the church as the body of Christ. Okay, now, as I said, this is an image that we've discussed in past episodes. We're going to explore more deeply. And I'll begin with paragraph 787 of the Catechism, where we read, From the beginning, Jesus associated his disciples with his own life, revealed the mystery of the kingdom to them, gave them a share in his mission, joy, and sufferings, 
Jesus spoke of a still more intimate communion between him and those who would follow him. Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he proclaimed a mysterious and real communion between his own body and ours when he said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay, so the catechism section here begins the subject of the church as the body of Christ by really just beginning to describe various levels of communion that exist between Jesus and his people. And from the beginning, from the beginning, he shared with his disciples his life. He shared his his mission. He shared his food. He, he shared his travels, his joys, his sufferings. Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, hinting at something deeper. Um, he spoke of the need for his disciples at some point to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Um, again, a deeper communion. But then this whole idea continues in the next paragraph as well, 788, where we read, and this really struck me, when his visible presence was taken from them, that is referring to Jesus' ascension into heaven, Jesus did not leave his disciples orphans. He promised to remain with them until the end of time. And to do that, he sent them his spirit. As a result, communion with Jesus has become, in a way, more intense. By communicating the spirit, Christ mystically constitutes as his body those brothers of his who are called together from every nation. These beginning paragraphs, you guys, are just so powerful and profound just in themselves because you know, he's just saying communion, intimacy between Jesus and his disciples is something that began from the very beginning when he shared his ministry, he shared his joy, shared his, shared his sorrow, shared intimate communion and in saying that I am the vine and you have to be attached to me and only in the vine will you, re, will you, will you be able to survive and grow. And then he ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit. And this is something to meditate on, maybe not now or today, but the fact that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell each one of us, there's no communion that, that could be any deeper than that. The, you know, As Paul said in one place, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, everything said so far, I will say, except the part about communing in Christ's body and blood, Everything said so far is are, are things that could have been said by me the entire 20 years that I was an evangelical. None of it new to me, as I said, except for the part about the body and blood of Christ. I understood the spirits indwelling. I understood the idea of I'm the vine, you were the... I understood all of this. It's just the part where it says, eat my flesh and drink my blood that, that would have eluded me. But how about you, men? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to this in terms of your own journey? Yeah, I would say um, that I would, I would be there with you, except for the 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 body and blood part as well. I would say, you know, when Jesus says, "Abide in me," right? Um, I'm the vine, you are the branches. How would we have interpreted what that would have meant in our world, where we didn't come from a place that had sacraments, didn't have the Eucharist? Mm -hmm. Well, what I would have said to anybody is what was said to me, <laughs> right? As a young Christian, is like you want to abide in Christ, stay in the Word, right? Um, commit <laughs> to daily prayer. Um, share your faith with someone else, uh, you know, surround yourself with people who are going to build you up. I mean, that's, those are all really great things. Those are things that you and me, we all still believe. 
as Catholic Christians, are important aspects of the Christian life. But uh, again, here you see the catechism taking it to another level. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Matt. Uh, we're 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 in the same sort of headspace here. When when I thought Ken and Matt about being part of the body of Christ, I admit that I was really holding fast to my invisible church ecclesiology that somehow I was spiritually and invisibly and maybe metaphysically bound you know to this invisible um, uh, hard to detect body of Christ that's out there in the world and the way that I stayed connected to the body had to do in large measure with spiritual disciplines uh, praying sharing my faith, mm-hmm. Uh, even going to church, but that that wasn't seen in the same way uh, uh, exactly as the catechism is putting it. Um, so it, it re- abiding in Christ really was more about spiritual disciplines and my own personal mm-hmm. walk with Jesus. But what you're pointing out here and what the catechism is, is driving at is that all of this language is, uh, you know, this abiding in Christ language and this communion language, it's all ecclesial, sacramental and Eucharistic. Well, I didn't really have much material to, to, to go by in my pre-Catholic Kenny life. And um, as, as we're going to see in this episode, especially, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save some of what I want to share for later, but this, this, the new lens that I have on this journey into the fullness of the faith is an ecclesial way, a sacramental mm-hmm. way, and a Eucharistic way mm-hmm. of understanding what's meant by I am part mm-hmm. of the body of Jesus uh, by virtue of being in the church. Yeah, I think that you say it well when you bring in the words e- e- ecclesial and sacramental. And what was the other? What was the third word? U- Eucharistic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eucharistic, because yeah, I mean, in in large part. I thought of abiding in Christ in a very individualistic kind of way. I mean, I knew there was mm-hmm. the body of Christ. I spoke of it. Mm-hmm. I knew there were these individual Christians that exist all over the world and that I was in communion with some of them in my um, in my fellowship. But yeah, it was mainly an individualistic kind of way. And, and there is an individualism, Christ in you, sure. the hope of glory. That's all true. But the catechism's focus in this section is not on the individual's communion per se, but communion between Christ and his body, the church. is It's ecclesial. This is a section on ecclesiology. The communion that exists between the body and Christ and within the church is Christ's body. So let's look together at paragraph 789 quickly, and then we'll begin to tear it down. 789 says, The comparison of the church with the body casts light on the intimate bond between Christ and Yeah, not just in me, but Christ and his church. Not only is she gathered around him, she is united in him, in his body. Three aspects of the church as the body of Christ are to be more specifically noted. One, the unity of all her members with each other as a result of their union with Christ. Two, Christ as the head of the body. And three, the church as his bride. Kenny, why don't you take up the first of those three points, and we'll we'll launch out from there. Sounds great. Yeah, the next section of the Catechism really uh, unpacks then this first thing of one body, or body of Christ as one body. Beginning at paragraph 790, we'll read and explain a little. Here, here's what the Catechism says. Believers who respond to God's word 
and become members of Christ's body, become intimately united with him. In that body, the life of Christ is communicated to those who believe and who, through the sacraments, are united in a hidden and real way to Christ in his passion and glorification. This is especially true of baptism, which unites us to Christ's death and resurrection, and the Eucharist, by which really sharing in the body of the Lord, we are taken up into communion with him and with one another. So, <laughs> a big thought here is that, again, comparing the, the pre-Catholic Pastor Kenny with currently Catholic Kenny, my sense of one body was primarily then related to my own individual faithfulness to God and hoping that everybody else was being faithful too, and we'll, we'll see all the faithful ones you know, up in heaven. But what the catechism is doing here is saying, no, there's, there's more that unites us than just our own individual faith. There's, in fact, the grace of God, the work of God inside of all of us that's happening through our participation in the sacraments. So <laughs> I become one with Jesus and the rest of the church, first and foremost, when I'm baptized into Jesus, uh, I'm, when I'm born again by water and the Spirit. I am joined together with Jesus and with the rest of the church. Baptism is my immersion into the full life of Christ. This is the Great Commission in action. This is where uh, Jesus says, go into all the world, discipling all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So by baptism, this is really where we join the church. In my world, we join the church when we, when we decided, you know, I agree with all these doctrines and I like the pastor and I like the preaching here. And I, you know, I'm already part of the invisible body of Christ, but I'll be part of this visible expression by signing up. Well, what the catechism is doing is saying, we join the church and we join Jesus and we mm -hmm. join the rest of the body of Christ by virtue of new birth at baptism. That is what seals the deal. Let me, let me pause right there and let you guys chime in. Yeah, yeah. It, let me jump in first, I guess, here. Of course, as a Baptist, my view of baptism was that it was a purely symbolic rite. It was a teaching moment. It was a way of saying to the congregation, I believe in Jesus. I've accepted him as my personal savior. I belong to him. You know, um, he has forgiven me and washed me clean, and I'm presenting that to the church. And so as a Baptist pastor, I remember still when I when I began to be more and more confused by things that the New Testament said. You know, here it says that uh, the passage you just read said that this is especially true of baptism, which unites us to Christ, death and resurrection. I remember reading uh, Paul in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is saying, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were buried with him, you died with him, so that you might be raised again to newness of life. And Kenny, Matt, I remember specifically thinking at one point, thinking, you know, why is it that if I preached a trillion sermons, even a trillion sermons on baptism, I would never think to say what Paul just said. I would never think to stand in my pulpit and say to my congregation, don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you died with him? You know, I, I just wouldn't have 
I wouldn't have used that language. And that's what got me thinking. But that's how Paul thought. Paul thought of baptism as something that happens to you. Anyway, Matt, what do you have to say? I am going to have to be careful because I have about 50 different rabbit trails I could choose to go down uh, because there's just so much here. Um, you know, we're we're trying to, to talk about, you know, what we used to think in regard to these things and, and what we think now. Mm-hmm. Um you know the the famous passage of, of Paul's, you know, on the body of Christ, and you were we were one parts, many body, and uh, or many parts, one one body, and you know what did that mean to me as someone who had kind of an invisible church ecclesiology? It's like you know it kind of doesn't matter. Everybody's got their own individual relationship with Christ. We're many parts, uh, you know, but we all know the same guy, right? It wasn't the same kind of it, when when you. When I at least heard a part like, you know, this idea of there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, you know, you were all one in Christ Jesus. The way that I would have translated that in my in my mind is that nobody is more important than anyone else, right? I wouldn't have heard necessarily the we are one mystical body in Christ, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I would have heard mm-hmm. you were all important. All of you who believe in Jesus have important jobs to do for the kingdom. I wouldn't have heard you are all cells in one body. Um, even though that's directly what Paul says, but if you've got an invisible church, ecclesi- I mean, I'm looking at this record on the back of my shelf. Uh, it's a bunch of cowboys standing in a field, uh, the Chuck Wagon gang, and it's called The Place Where I Worship, right? Uh, these guys are out in the field. They're like, eh, it doesn't matter. We don't have to go to some church, right? We don't have to do anything. We just sit out here, play guitars, and love the Lord. Um, there's There was a lot of that in my world. Like, what does it mean? I I don't have to be connected to you. I got to be connected to Jesus, uh, right? And and this idea of being part of a body, and you're going to get into this more when we talk about the whole Christ, this idea of being part of a body, it, in some ways, other Christians were kind of like a, to be suspected, right? Uh, to be deeply, you know, scrutinized to see if they really were part of the body that I was a part of or not. Um, you know, I joke around that like if I was a part of, the body of Christ at that point, I was the fist shaking myself at the other parts of the, at the other members, right? Like that's how I kind of saw myself in that world. Mm. I, and rather than this, this true kind of mystical union that is, mm-hmm. I mean, looking at it now, it's as clear as day that this is like a visible church ecclesiology. Yeah. Yeah. And it begins, if we can say it, this is a very Catholic phrase, by virtue of our baptism, <laughs> mm-hmm. not by virtue of a sinner's prayer, and in many cases, not even really by virtue of my own personal choice, but by virtue of the faith that is the gift of God that comes to me through the church. Um, often it comes uh, through the gift of baptism that's given to children, which they then grow up and apprehend and, and take and run with. But it all begins as a gift of grace and birth, just like natural birth. Uh, you didn't choose to be born. You were brought into the world as a gift. In the same way, our new life in Christ begins with a gift that's given to us, God's life that's given to us at baptism, and which we then um, <laughs> live out that gift. We, we, we grasp that gift and we make of it everything that God gives us. That's how we initially come into the life of Jesus, the life of God and the church. Um, but, but then, as, as it goes on to say, we experience this oneness also 
through the celebration of the Eucharist, through the communion table. And my wife and I were on a walk this morning, and I said, you know, this phrase, uh, take communion or receive communion or have communion at church, I just didn't really have a, a concept of what that was what what was possible in that celebration until i became catholic i thought of well i'm i'm remembering what jesus did on the cross rather than the, the catholic understanding that jesus is being i'm going to i'm going to slow way down as i say this re now let's use some body language here membered like the members of a body are reconnecting in the celebration of the Eucharistic table. In that way, the catechism is saying, when we, when we become baptized and then when we celebrate the Eucharist, we are joined together with Jesus, the whole heavenly church and the whole earthly church by virtue of that sacrament. So my one body ecclesiology with the sacraments, especially it's it's on it's on a, a kind of steroids that i can't e i can't even explain i'm, I'm just excited about it uh, i'm yeah. gonna pause right there for just one more segue and then we'll jump into the next paragraph yeah the uh the one thing i would add to that is uh, we talked about this in our uh series that we did on the mass right you walk into church and what does the priest hold up before us all as a congregation what is consecrated it's not Holy Communion that's consecrated. It's the Eucharist that's consecrated. Communion is when we participate in it, right? Whereas, yeah, communion's what happens when you eat it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so it's not communion when it's laying over there, right? Uh, I mean, it's, right. that's not, that's, it's, it's communion when we are entering into it. That's why even people who don't receive communion are still encouraged to make some sort of like a spiritual communion, right? Because there yes. is meant to be this, this, this connection there. And also, when we talk about somebody being out of communion with the church, like that's a very serious thing for us to talk about. It's not mm -hmm. merely like they're not a. We don't. I would have said somebody doesn't go to my church anymore. And they well, they don't go to my church anymore. I would say now as a Catholic, if it's a Catholic who's walked away and is doing something else or somewhere else, I'm like that person has walked away from. We got to get them back in communion, <laughs> right? That's right. that's the way that I think about it now, which is very different. Um, but yeah, where where are we going next with this? Okay, so then driving forward, we, we enter this body, we become part of the one body through the initiation of baptism, and we continue to walk in that oneness uh, of body life through our celebration of the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, uh, where we are, are in communion with, with one another. And then 791, an important uh, uh, sort of discussion of other issues that might arise when we talk about being one. 791 says this, the body's unity does not do away with the diversity of its members. In the building up of Christ's body, uh, there is engaged a diversity of members and functions. There is only one spirit who, according to his own richness and the needs of the ministries, gives his different gifts for the welfare of the church. The unity of the mystical body produces and stimulates charity among the faithful. From this it follows that if one member suffers anything, all the members suffer with him. And if one member is honored, all the members together rejoice. Finally, 
the unity of the mystical body triumphs over all human divisions. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I have, I have two big ideas for my part, guys, in terms of my journey into the Catholic faith with respect to this specific section. Before I was a Catholic, I tended to think of diversity um, in the body of Christ in denominational terms. Maybe you did too, or, or maybe you didn't. But I tended to think of diversity in the body of Christ kind of like this. Well, over there, they believe in baptismal regeneration. Over there, they don't. <laughs> they just believe you have to pray a sinner's prayer. Over here, they believe in women's ordination. Over here, it's only men. Over here, they only use the King James Bible. Over here, it's a different version every week. Uh, over here, they believe in the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Over there, they don't. And on and on and on and on it went. And when I would struggle through the big and small differences that I ex that I personally experienced in my 30-plus year journey in Protestant evangelicalism, the it was almost impossible for me to think about diversity in any other terms uh, than these, because everybody had different theologies, different interpretations mm. of the Bible, mm. different understandings of church government. I mean, e e big and small things, big and small differences. Now, what the catechism is doing, well, first of all, it doesn't even speak in those terms, in terms of everybody believing different things. In that sense, it's unheard of uh, from a Catholic perspective that we would have everybody basically running around with disparate mm -hmm. theologies in all of these big and small ways. Mm -hmm. What the catechism is doing is saying the diversity is seen in terms of the graces and the ministries and the capacities and the functions. These are the words that the mm -hmm. catechism is using. Uh, and gifts, ministries and gifts for the welfare of the church. But and I'll stop after this and share the second one in a minute after you guys share. But but with respect to denominationalism, that would be seen from a Catholic perspective as a kind of brokenness in the body, as something that was a sign and a symbol of disease in the body of Christ. And I'll stop right there with just that first reflection. All that I would really say here is that no, I would not have thought of the that of the diversity in that way. I mean, as a Protestant, I understood that people having contradictory doctrines wasn't a good thing. That made sense immediately. So no, I would have thought of diversity in terms, uh, well, in the terms that are described here. I, I think this paragraph here is just a beautiful restatement of the things Paul is saying, in, in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, about one spirit within the body, but many manifestations of the Spirit in the gifts that are given to all of God's people and the ways, the various ways in which they serve one another and serve the ministry and build up the church. Mm -hmm. So no, I see this as pretty much a uh, beautiful restatement of 1 Corinthians 12 and therefore of what I believed when I was an evangelical. I wouldn't have thought of diversity that way. So I would and I would not have. So um, I was... <laughs> 
So I'll I'll do the happy medium here. So I did not personally think of the um the divisions between Christians. Or I, or I didn't come to think of the divisions between Christians as diversity in the body of Christ. Um, but I was surrounded by people who did think that. I was surrounded by people who did think that at uh, Asbury College uh, because there were a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people who went to different. They all went to the same college, but they all went to different churches, right? Or at Family Christian Store, we sold mm-hmm. um everybody, right? <laughs> we sold yeah. All kinds of, we sold everything but, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints and Jehovah's Witness stuff. I mean, so there, in those worlds, there was this sense that this is diversity in the body of Christ. What I would have thought of diversity in the body of Christ as is, in my particular congregation, there's one guy who's good at leading the singing. There's one lady who's good at children's ministries. <laughs> there's this other guy who's good at Bible study. There's, I would have, I would have seen it more that way. But going back to, uh, yeah. we talked about it in this, the first episode, um, I did not believe in a visible church, but I was frustrated that a visible church didn't exist in my ecclesiology. And it's because I saw all the things that the mm-hmm. church is supposed to be up to in Scripture, that the church is up to in the book of Acts. And yeah. I looked around and I thought, how can my little congregation ever have a diversity enough of people to handle all these needs that are happening around us? Um, yeah. Because ultimately, all the places I went were somewhat homogenous because it they all consisted of people who were sort of in the same headspace. And yet I look around, uh, you know, at the Catholic Church, and I'm like, we got hospitals and pregnancy centers and soup kitchens and, you know, overseas missionaries yeah. and like, and all of that. And that's only possible because of this other kind of concept of what it means to be a body than what I yeah. had uh, in my previous understanding. I can refine slightly what I said because something else has popped into my mind. I would have viewed the diversity of uh, worship experiences maybe as as a, as a, as a sign of the diversity that's being spoken of here. You know, the fact that some people sang beautiful old hymns and other churches sang modern worship songs, or some were more uh, more liturgical in high church and some were lower. I would have seen that as as different expressions of the spirit, but not the theolo- not theological differences. I would have thought, no, something someone's right and someone's wrong. See, but I would Wait, not no. have because I would have argued that the hymns of Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts are categorically superior. To, well, I would agree uh, with that. Modern praise and worship. So <laughs> I, would, I would not I would have, have respected agreed. that kind of diversity. Well, if you're talking well, superior, I would agree. Yeah, Kenny. <laughs> well, you run it. You you run it. I'll, I'll share one more thought. This will this will sort of be a, a a way out of what we're just talking about here regarding diversity. That, um, you know, diversity of expression, diversity of style, and all that. I I I, I get all that, and and that made made sense. But what would often happen when we would come up to these brick walls of difference, of difference, something something as simple as how you even become a Christian, someone would always say, "Well, you know, in the essentials, unity, and in the yeah. uh, non non essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity." And it's kind of like the the the, tra- the trap door button that you hit when you want the conversation to go away. And now as a Catholic, <laughs> I want to be a lot more careful about when I, when I roll that little uh, triad out in a conversation because our Catholic faith is a way of thinking about everything being joined together and brought together into a kind of unity, though it, there is a body uh, diversity, diversity of parts. But there's another piece of this paragraph, and this will be the last thing that I say that, that's really helpful to me now as a Catholic. 
and it's kind of buried a little it's a little hidden in the middle of of the paragraph and it uh, calls to mind another sacramental way in which we are united together as the one body and it's right there in the middle where it says um, if one member suffers anything, all the members suffer with him. And if one member is honored, all the members together rejoice. Well, right here, I'm saying that I see, sort of hidden within the, that line or that little paragraph, the sacrament of reconciliation. And why now, as a Catholic, I so embrace that as part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. And I'll just share how I understand it in terms of oneness, guys, why I go into a confessional now as a Catholic? Well, it's because I believe this, that I've not only sinned against God when I've sinned, but I am part of a body. In my sin, I cause, by virtue of my attachment, my organistic attachment to the body of Christ, my own sin, even if it's hidden, causes suffering in the body. And in the same way, my freedom from that, by virtue of being forgiven and making a commitment to live a holy life, brings about wholeness and rejoicing in the body. And in the sacrament of reconciliation, you are always conducting that sacrament with Jesus and his church in the person of the priest. That is, Jesus is there hearing my confession his uh, the voice of Jesus is hidden in the voice in the vocal cords of the priest and also the priest by virtue of the fact that he's a baptized christian just like me who sins just like me is the church that i'm confessing my sins to and so i personally see uh that part of the way that we maintain our oneness in the body of christ is we we enter it through communion we uh, enjoy it and maintain it through, uh, I'm sorry, through baptism we enter, through communion we maintain, through reconciliation we heal what's broken and we restore. So that's as much as I'll say uh, about that section. All right, Ken. On we go. We've been talking about the body a lot. We should probably talk about the head. Yeah, okay. Christ is the head of the body is the next part that the catechism picks up. And I just want to ask the question, then, what does it mean to say that Christ is the head of the body? And as I look at the paragraphs that are laid out for us here, I see the, uh, the answer coming in four ways. There are four things that is meant. Um, the first is this, Christ's headship speaks of his preeminence. That's number one. Christ being the head of the body speaks of his preeminence overall. Paragraph 792 says, Christ is the head of the body, the church, he is the principle of creation and redemption. Now, there's something that could be gone off on. He is the principle of creation and redemption, raised to the Father's glory in everything he is preeminent, especially in the church, through whom he extends his reign, his preeminence, over all things. Now, if you look up the word principle in your dictionary, I found that to be an odd word there to say he is the principle of creation and redemption. You look up the word principle in your dictionary, and you're going to read things like this. A principle is a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning. You know, like you think of the principles of geometry or the principles of modern physics. 
these are the truths that come first and that and from which everything else arises. And this is true. Jesus is the truth from which everything else arises. But I think that what I think that what the catechism has in mind here is slightly different. I think that, that the catechism in fact makes clear what it means in this context by the use of the word principle when it immediately adds, and I'll read it again, raised to the Father's glory in everything, he, that is Jesus, is preeminent, especially in the church through whom he extends his reign over all things. So this is what the headship of Christ means. First of all, it means that Jesus is preeminent, that he reigns, and that he's extending his reign over all things in heaven and on earth through the church. Now, this is an idea, I'm sure you guys know, that's highlighted all over the place in the New Testament, but especially in the letters of Paul. I think of Colossians chapter 1, read it sometime. I think of Ephesians chapters 1, actually 2 and 3, read it sometime. Uh, but I, this is what struck me. It's, it's, it's interesting for me to remember that from the very first, this was actually the message of Christianity. Um, so often I was taught to think of the gospel as the four spiritual laws or the Roman road, you know, we are sinners, Christ died, you know, accept Christ. But it is really interesting to read the book of Acts and to note that this is not the gospel that was preached from the earliest of times. In fact, in the very first sermon of the Christian era, uh, preached by St. Peter on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, we see this truth announced. Think of it again as you hear some of the words from Acts 2. Peter begins his sermon with the crucifixion. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. From this, Peter moves to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, quoting again, but God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this which you see and hear, the Holy Spirit that has been poured out. So Peter begins his sermon with the resurrection. You killed Christ. You killed him through the hands of wicked men. He goes to the resurrection, but God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand from where he poured out the spirit that you now see. And then this is how Peter concludes his sermon with the claim that Jesus is now Lord. Quote, let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And again, I think, when's the last time you heard a Christian sermon that said, Jesus was crucified, but God raised him from the dead, and therefore he is now the king of the universe. <laughs> so this is what you need right. to accept. He is the king of the universe. Anyway, this is what Christ's headship speaks of to begin with. It speaks of his preeminence. I changed my mind about the gospel too, Ken, uh, years before I ever became a Catholic. Uh, and that's prob probably part of the gateway for me, the long, the, the gateway and then the long path into the church was understanding that the gospel, just what you said here, is really four words. 
Well, maybe more than that. How about this? The risen Jesus, the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord of the whole world. It's like if someone says, hey, you Catholic, what's the gospel? The crucified and risen Jesus is Lord of the whole world. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so, so in that sense, the church is saying here in the catechism what the Bible says. The headship of Jesus means that Jesus is in charge of the world. So that that's as much as I'll say right there. Yeah, and of course it's true that in him there is forgiveness of sins. There's there are all these blessings follow, but that's what the uh, the essential message is, Matt. Yeah, I, I I try not to fall in that okay. trap whenever I'm in a debate with someone they say, "Hey, in one sentence tell me what uh-huh. is the gospel." I'm like, "Oh no, this person has gone <laughs> to some like evangelism training academy where they're right. like, if somebody tells you anything different than this sentence I had you memorized, uh-huh. then they're not uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm always hesitate to that. But if somebody asks me what is the gospel, I'm like, yeah, all right, all right. yeah. <laughs> okay, this gets even more this gets even more interesting. Then, so to speak of Christ's headship over the church is first of all to speak of his preeminence over the church and his his extending the kingdom through the church over the entire world. But secondly, Christ's headship over the body means this: it means that the church is called to resemble him. He's the head, we're the body. You know, the head doesn't go one direction. You know, the head doesn't go to Disneyland on on Monday and, you know, and the body, you know, go somewhere else, you know, to the city dump or whatever. The body goes with the head. And what this means, the headship of Christ means the church is called to resemble him and to live out the pattern of his life. And that's paragraph 793. All his members must strive to resemble him until Christ be formed in them. For this reason, we are taken up into the mysteries of his life, associated with his sufferings as the body with its head, suffering with him, that we may also be glorified with him. And of course, this is something that Paul explicitly teaches in the New Testament. One place would be Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, where Paul said this, It is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this is where, if I wanted, I could go off on Joel Olstein, who, Matt, the Lord does not want you driving a Pinto. He doesn't <laughs> want you in that Nissan he wants you to get high. He wants you raised higher, higher. He wants you at a Cadillac minimum, maybe a BMW, maybe an Audi. You know, the, the whole prosperity gospel. But even where, where, even where we're not looking at prosperity gospel, there is an idea that, that really lies at the heart of, of it, some forms, maybe many, maybe much of evangelical theology. The, the basic idea that Christ suffered in our place so that we don't so that we don't have to. This is simply not the teaching of the New Testament. What the New Testament teaches us is that Christ's body is called to resemble her head. Take up your cross and follow me. That my life, as I'm conformed to Jesus, my life is in some sense going to follow the pattern of his life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so that Paul can say... uh, Provided we suffer with him. 
And of course, yeah. I think of that passage in Colossians chapter one, where Paul says that he's filling up in his own body what is lacking still. There, there's this idea that the church repeats and fulfills and lives out in its own way the mm-hmm. life of Jesus. And that's what his headship means. That's one of the ways that we can speak of the headship of Christ over his church is that we are called to be his body. That is to resemble his life, to live it out, to live out the pattern of his life. And Kenny, I see you, I see you being able to scratch on your chin like, like I have things to say. <laughs> well, well, I just need to add two more words to the three that I talked about at the beginning of the episode. Those were a sacramental, Eucharistic, and ecclesial. But what's being brought mm-hmm. out here is incarnational, and yeah. let's say multiplicational. <laughs> we want to yeah. so so. In other words, we become the presence, the actual presence of Jesus, the enfleshed, flesh and mm-hmm. blood presence of Jesus inside of this world that we live in, and that happens. That expands. You talked about the expansion. That happens every time a person enters the body through baptism um that that just expands mm-hmm. and expands and expands that's how the church is spreading throughout the whole world all matt, right so i'm, I'm so matt, glad as that I you listen brought to up kenny there matt i have to ask you something before you make your comment go as right you ahead. listen to kenny as you listen to kenny speak there and give us his new words his words it suddenly struck me that he ought to be doing a show called uh, mr mr burchard's catholic neighborhood <laughs> The word for today. Today's word is. (laughs) Yeah, the word for today is. Ecclesiology. Today's episode is brought to you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If Kenny were to walk into the room and go over to the closet and put a sweater on and say, Today's word is Mr. Bouchard's Catholic neighborhood. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Matt. Okay, so I'm so glad you brought up uh, Colossians 124. Because this is a stumper. I mean, it is a stumper for anybody with low ecclesiology, and most people with low ecclesiology will admit it's a stumper. Um, mm-hmm. So in paragraph 793, uh, which you just went through, it says, all his members must, must strive to resemble him. So Paul says something that would work well if he said it differently with my low ecclesiology. So he says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. If he had stopped there, it'd have been fine, right? It would have been fine. Or if he had said, I want to fill up in my body uh, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions so that I may be purified of my sins and be a better mm-hmm. Christian. I might have been able to go on with that. But he says something that there's it's just impossible to understand unless you have this kind of ecclesiology, which is, why do I fill up what is lacking? For the sake of his body, which is the church. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like, And it mm. comes back to the idea that not only am I supposed to resemble Christ mm-hmm. in my life as an individual Christian, but the church is called to resemble Christ. The church, the body, is called mm-hmm. to resemble the head Christ. So what has the head done that the body hasn't done yet? The head has suffered it has died, it has risen. Now we did an image of that, the spiritual sense of that in baptism, every one of us. There are a whole lot of members of the church over time who have suffered and died, and they are going to be risen in the way that Christ was risen at the end of all things, not to spoil the whole program. But until that time, we as a church are going through that, not just as individuals isolated, but as a body together. 
So when Paul mm-hmm. is doing that, it's not just for Paul's mm-hmm. benefit as a Christian. It's like you were saying, Kenny, when you go to reconciliation, it's not just you trying to repair your relationship with God. You are a sick cell yeah. in a healthy body, right? Yeah. And so your suffering of going through that examination of conscience, of the shame and embarrassment of admitting these things out loud with your own mouth to another living human who stands in the person of Christ to heal you, you just made the whole body better by doing that, right? Uh, so Amen. your suffering, your healing are both benefits that help the whole body resemble Christ better. Um, again, uh, if you don't have like this kind of sense of what the church is, then Paul's good until he says for the sake of his body, the church. But if you do have that, then it makes sense what Paul is saying. Then it, yeah, then it makes sense. It, then it makes sense. Benefit the whole body. That, that, the, that the headship of Jesus over his church speaks of his preeminence. Then the headship of Jesus over his church speaks of of the call for us to flesh out his life as his body, to resemble him, for the church's life to follow the pattern uh, of his own life, uh, to incarnate, to be a continuation of the incarnation. Okay, and then thirdly, Christ's headship means that Christ provides for our growth. This comes out in Paul uh, from Paul in Ephesians 4, but first of all, the Catechism paragraph 794 Christ provides for our growth. That's what his headship means. To make us grow toward him, our head, he provides in his body, the church, the gifts and assistance by which we help one another along the way of salvation. This reflects back to the paragraph that Kenny was dealing with a few minutes ago, but it reminds me immediately of Ephesians 4, where Paul speaks of how the church is to, and now I'm quoting Paul in Ephesians 4, the church is to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. So here, here you have this organic picture from Christ the head flows Christ's life into his body by which we grow, by which we are built mm-hmm. up, by which we build up one another. That's the third yeah. thing that the headship of Christ points toward. And so before I go to the fourth and final, any comments on that? If you just take into account all the things that have built up to this point, it just flows naturally, right? It grows naturally up into the rest yeah. of the argument. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Christ's preeminence, the call for us to resemble our head in the body, the fact that our growth comes from the head. And then finally, the catechism is teaching us here that Christ being the head of the church and the church being his body means that together we comprise the, quote, whole Christ, unquote. Now, this has been hinted at already in a few things that have been said here today, but here's how the paragraph, I mean, here's how the catechism puts it. Paragraph 795, Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ. Christus totus. The church is one with Christ. The saints are acutely aware of this unity. Now, this this whole Christ, this could sound like blasphemy because Christ is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, but this is what the New Testament is teaching is that we are joined to him. He is the head, we are the body, as Kenny's going to describe in a moment when he talks about the church as the bride of Christ. The church the head and the body are joined as one. 
And, and, and again, the saints are acutely aware of this, and this is all I'm going to do to close this section, is quote two wonderful statements from the saints responding to this truth. This is how St. Augustine responded to this truth. Listen to this. Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Do you understand and grasp, brethren, God's grace toward us? Marvel and rejoice, we have become Christ. For if he is the head, we are the members. He and we together are the whole man. The fullness of Christ then is the head and the members. But what does head and members mean? Christ and the church. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. But just hear this one and then I'd love to hear your responses to it. This is how Joan of Arc expressed this to her judges, in fact, at trial. This is something she said. About Jesus and the church, I simply know they're just one thing, and we shouldn't complicate the matter. Wow. And this and this goes back, guys, to something that we, we may say over and over again. I, I think in the first episode we talked about how it how intuitive it is for Catholics to talk about the church and Christians doing the things that Jesus does in the world. And mm -hmm. for some evangelicals to some kind of times go, whoa, 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 that's only Jesus who can do that, or you only <laughs> do that toward Jesus. Well, the saints and the New Testament ecclesiology that we're unpacking do not want us to dislocate Jesus from his church. They want us to see, well, what St. Joan of Arc says there, Ken. They are one. Of course, the picture of that oneness is um, where we come in for a landing today. But Matt, before I jump into that, did you want to say something there? Oh, I mean, just the amusing nature of this whole conversation. I, I remember stumbling across that Joan of Arc quote, uh, actually, before I even picked up the catechism and then seeing it again here in this context, I was like, oh, it actually makes sense here. But, you know, if you see it out of context... <laughs> I, about Jesus Christ of the church, I simply know they're just one thing and we shouldn't complicate the matter. Uh, first time I saw that, I was like, what are you talking about, Joan? Like, are you kidding me? Jesus is yeah. the second person of the Trinity, true God from true man. The church is a bunch of idiots going around botching everything he told them to do. Right. 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 So, um, right. Yeah. but we're not talking about what the church does in committees and how your neighbors act to you right. two pews up. Right? We're talking about what Christ has redeemed. Uh, we're talking about yeah. who Christ came to save and what he has built the church to be. And mm -hmm. that is, we, we have an image and a picture of it here, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Um, but yes. the other thing that sort of makes me laugh about that is, even as we talk about this, the ludicrousness of saying, well, the head's over here and the body's over here. Like, is your head a part of your body? Because mine is. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like... I can't talk about my head and my body as though they are two different kinds of things, right? They are, at least in me. Sometimes I wish my body wasn't a part of my head anymore. <laughs> yeah. But it, well, it, that's but that helps make sense, you know, when you understand that the head and the body are not two separate things, but they are one unit, it makes much yes. more sense when Jesus is saying yeah. to Paul on yeah. the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me, right? Why are you persecuting yeah. me? Yeah, for all of this, we need a yes, but how uh, conclusion. How in the world does Jesus become one, live as one, uh, function and operate in the world as one with the church? Well, this is where we get the, the biblical image and the biblical reality 
of the church as the bride of Christ. Uh, and this is in 796. I'm just going to read this, not talk about it a lot, and then spend a little time at the end just reading a quote from Pope Benedict XVI in which he explains some of this. Here's what the Catechism says about the bride of Christ, the covenant partner, the one flesh uh, partner of Jesus. It says this, The unity of Christ and the church, head and members of one body, also implies the distinction of the two within a personal relationship. This aspect is often expressed by the image of bridegroom and bride. The theme of Christ as bridegroom of the church was prepared for by the prophets and announced by John the Baptist. The Lord referred to himself as the bridegroom. The apostle speaks of the whole church and each of the faithful members of his body as a bride betrothed to Christ the Lord so as to become but one spirit with him. The church is the spotless bride of the Lamb. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. He has joined her with himself in an everlasting covenant and never stops caring for her as for his own body. Then the next paragraph inside of this one says, This is the whole Christ, head and body. Whoa, <laughs> this is Catholic ecclesiology. This is the whole Christ, head and body, one formed from many. Whether the head or members speak, it is Christ who speaks. He speaks in his role as the head, in Latin, ex persona capitis, and in his role as body, ex persona corporis. What does this mean? the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church, said the Apostle Paul. And the Lord himself says in the Gospels, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are in fact two different persons, yet they are one in the conjugal union as head, he calls himself the bridegroom, as body, he calls himself bride. Now, I'm going to read in a second from Pope Benedict XVI, who wrote what I'm about to read when he was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. But what's happening here is the fulfillment of the image of humanity reaching its apex, its full crescendo from the beginning of the story all the way to the end. A male and female, a bride and a, a bridegroom and a bride, a man and a woman brought together by God, who said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will create a suitable helper for mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And then these two together uh, e expand the dominion of God over the whole earth. The Catholic ecclesiology mm -hmm. is saying, and the biblical ecclesiology is saying, that image has been filled up in Jesus and his relationship with the church in in the most real way that that is possible. Now, I'm going to end. Uh, we'll let someone who's way better at preaching this out than I am uh, kind of bring what I want to share in for a landing. And this comes from uh, Pope Benedict XVI. Again, as I said, when he wrote this uh, in 1996, he was uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. And this is from his book, 
called to communion, understanding the church today, um, about the 37, page 37 to 39, here's this, this quote from Pope Benedict XVI. These reflections bring us to the third root of Paul's notion of the body of Christ, the idea of nuptiality, or to express it in, a profane, in profane terms, the biblical philosophy of love, which is inseparable from Eucharistic theology. This philosophy of love appears immediately at the beginning of Holy Scripture. It is found at the conclusion of the creation narrative, where the following prophetic word is attributed to Adam. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to the woman, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh, hence a single new existence. Paul also takes up this idea that man and woman become one flesh in a bond at once spiritual and physical in the first letter to the Corinthians, where he states that this word is fulfilled in communion. He who cleaves to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6.17. Once again, we must not interpret the term spirit with modern linguistic uh, sensibilities, but must read it in its Pauline sense. If we do so, its significance is not far removed from body. It means a single spiritual existence together with him, who in rising again was made spirit by the Holy Spirit while remaining bodily in the openness of this spirit. So what uh, um, Pope Benedict XVI is doing here is saying that what's happened through Jesus to the church is that there has been a conjugal union, a nuptial union, a marital union, where the bridegroom has found his bride and is one flesh with her, and they are one in the world. And here's the final thought from, from this section of the book. What we developed previously in terms of the image of eating now becomes more perspicuous and more comprehensible from the point of view of the image of love between human beings. In the sacrament, which is an act of love, two subjects are fused in such a way as to overcome their separation and to be made one. Hence the Eucharistic mystery precisely in being transformed by the idea of nuptiality remains the heart of the concept of the church as described by the term body of Christ. And in that way, that's a close quote, in that way, the end of this paragraph sums up where we began uh, this whole episode, that we are the body of Christ. We enter that body through the sacrament of baptism. The life of the body of Christ is maintained through the sacrament of communion. It is healed when broken through the sacrament of reconciliation. And we move into the world as the very presence of Jesus, the, the incarnated presence, the enfleshed, one flesh presence of Jesus in the world, his bride. As usual, there's so much there, in Rath and at the time, Cardinal Ratzinger's words. Um, but an image kept coming to me as you were reading that, Kenny, and that is the image of Eve being taken from the rib, from the side of Adam, and then Jesus on the cross, his side being pierced, and out came blood and water. Um, there's something very profound going on there, and uh, 
anyway as I don't we pointed out a few weeks ago it's right um it's right there in paragraph 766 of the catechism which we've bounced back to multiple times this idea of head and body right um this idea of bride and bridegroom uh, in 766, it says, As Eve was formed from the sleeping Adam's side, so the church was born from the pierced heart of Christ, hanging dead on the cross. Mm-hmm. God made Adam a bride out of his body. Jesus also fashioned a bride out of his body. I mean, it's all... Yeah. Like, the, the images just kind of... They just crash onto one another. And this idea Very of the bride perfect. of Christ and the body of Christ... <laughs> very big if i had people sometimes i'd wave it right now people sometimes come to us and say oh you guys are so good you're such insightful teachers i'm like we're literally just reading we're literally (laughs) just reading the stuff yeah that's it all right well we've gone through a lot and there's much yet to come so thank you for joining us on this episode of on the journey please check out previous episodes in this series or other series that we've done by going to chnetwork.org you can also join our online community and interact with others Mm. who are having conversations about these kinds of things, community.chnetwork.org. And we would really appreciate your support. We try and make our resources free, but that's because uh, generous people are behind this. So if you want to join that group, go to uh, chnetwork.org slash compass. Ken, Kenny, thanks so much. Yeah. Talk to you next week. Great Great to see you. Bye-bye.